so glad you're here as we're continuing in uh, our series through the book of Romans. And last week we were in chapter 9, so this week, what chapter are we in? Can you take a guess? Yes, 12. So turn with me to chapter 12. Now we're in chapter 10. You can start turning with me uh, there now. It's uh, so helpful when you're looking at the word with me. But we're talking about the rescue plan as uh, Chad mentioned a little bit earlier. And I was trying to think of examples in my life of uh, times of, of rescue. And uh, my wife and I some years back were with another couple and we did a, a really fun vacation to Maui together, uh, which was, was a blast. Well, one of the days we were exploring and going through some tide pools there. If you've ever had fun doing that, just exploring and seeing the different creatures and these uh, beneath the rocks and crabs and starfish and all this neat stuff. Well, this particular uh, tide pool that we found was o- only about as big as I can get my arms around right here. And in it, we saw, we have a, a picture I actually took of, of the actual fish, was a, a little puffer fish. I don't know if you've seen those before. It was, it was a good-sized one. It wasn't tiny. It was about this big. And uh, we noticed, though, at first, we're like, oh, that's so cool to see that. But then we realized that it was swimming kind of slow. And, man, he was, he'd gotten himself into a, into a jam. Like, he was in this tiny little tide pool, and the sun was beating down as we checked the water temperature. Where that water temperature was like 80, 90 degrees, and that maybe even more. I don't know. But, uh, but it, was, it was bad news for this puffer fish. So we start trying to think through, like, how can we save Mr. Puffer? Like, it was, it was like a big deal. And it was, it, it, you'd find it pretty sad how long it took us to solve this. And so we started thinking, because why is it, what do you see as the issue? You can't really pick it up very easily, because you start to pick it up, it panics, it blows itself up, and it's got those spiky things. I'm like, I don't want to get spiked as much as I love the puffer fish. And so, and so after a while, uh, Kathy, who is our, our friend that was with us, she said, well, why don't we take one of our t-shirts, why don't you take one of your t-shirts, slide it underneath the puffer fish, and carry it to safety. And it worked. It was so cool. I, like, I, we were so into the, this rescue mission. So seeing this little puffer fish swim happily off into the ocean, into the Hawaiian waters, was like a degree of, of satisfaction. Uh, was was pretty thrilling. And I was like, found myself excited about this for quite a while. And I was like, that's weird that I'm excited about saving a puffer fish, you know? But uh, the fact that I'm still talking about it like 10 years later. But, uh, but, but I was thinking about that as far as a, a rescue goes. There's something in us, the way that we're wired, that way that we're designed, that, man, it feels fantastic. It brings meaning and purpose when you're like, man, I'm part of, of rescuing life. I think of those who are in different roles of service in hospitals, whether a doctor or a nurse, what the satisfaction that must be of, of saving somebody's life must be fantastic. But amplify that about 5,000 times or more. Think about what we're given the opportunity to be a part of, the opportunity to be a part of rescuing souls, redirecting eternities. Allow that to actually sink in, and that'll just blow your mind. That's what we're invited to. That's what we're going to see in the text this morning. Last week, we were introduced to God's part in the whole plan, and a lot of us, it's a challenge to wrap our mind around His, His, uh, his plan and how He's He's put that into place, but this week it's a little bit more clear, and so we're going to spend some time unpacking that, but it's important before we explain what the the plan is for us, we need to understand first what is the rescue plan. So that's kind of how Paul approaches it in our text this morning. First, he starts by explaining what the rescue plan is and then what our part is in it. Let me pray for us before we dive in. 
Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this chance to be together and have conversations like this that really, really matter. So critical to think about what our responsibility in your rescue plan is, God. I, I pray that we would open our, our, our minds, open our eyes, that this would maybe even redirect our, our thinking of how we approach our days, what should be priority in our day. And I pray that you'd move in us, that you'd work in us, that you'd shape us to be more like yourself. We recognize we can't do any of this apart from you. Pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So looking at verse 1 in chapter 10, it uh, starts by unpacking and pointing to, I'd say I titled this first section, Misdirected Passions Don't Rescue. Because brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they, may, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So he starts there by really the same way that he started in chapter 9. The first thing that you see is the, he's lamenting over the fact that his Jewish brothers and sisters hadn't embraced Jesus Christ. And so his heart's broken over that, uh, that fact. But I, I do like that he didn't consider the rejection of the gospel beyond repair. It wasn't irreversible. So to me, I was reminded of that just even with people that I interact with that are Jewish, and maybe for those of you that interact with people that are of Jewish uh, descent, where you're like, man, it's not as if they're beyond hope or beyond God's reach, and so what does he do? He, he actually prays for them. Other reminder for us is when we're praying for people, probably, not probably, the, the most important thing that you can pray for somebody is about their salvation, Really, that's, that, that's, the, that's the biggest thing, really, out of, out of anything you can pray for somebody, it's their salvation. It's not their health, it's not their job, it's not their contentment, it's not their uh, material possessions. It has nothing to do with any of it. If you're thinking level of importance, the most important prayer you can pray for someone is their salvation. What does he point to is the problem, though. He says, for I bear witness, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge, not according to knowledge. The important thing to understand there is because you often hear, oh, but they're, but they're so sincere. Have you heard that before describing somebody and their faith and their belief system? But here's the thing to understand is that you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. That's a, that's a key thing to understand. If your sincerity isn't based on truth, it, it, it's, it's not, it, not going to save you. It's not going to rescue you. I was watching a, a video that explained an interesting fact. I don't know if you've uh, seen this before, but this is a, a Sparklet's cup. This is what you see normally at a water dispenser. It's interesting because they've designed these. I'm just blown away with this. That uh, Who knows how they figured this out. But that you can actually set one of these down, and because of the way that it's made up, it can actually hold the weight of a human being. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? So you guys want to see it tested, but you got to come directly down straight on top of it. You guys ready to see this? So watch it. Let's see if it can hold my weight. Oh, I was wrong, but I sincerely thought that it could do that. You know, that's so frustrating. You know, didn't you guys see my sincerity in that explanation? You know, like this was going to 
hold 190, maybe a couple pounds more, man. And, uh, and, and really, you, you saw there, though, that sincerity, it doesn't matter. It has to be founded on truth. Otherwise, what's the point of it? It's, 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 it's pointless. It's, it's, it doesn't matter how excited or passionate somebody is if it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to knowledge. And, and Paul uh, would obviously know a little something about being zealous for the wrong thing. Present day, even uh, this morning, Josh pointed out where we see it. Do you think a, a, an ISIS rebel, rebel, do you think they're zealous about something? They're zealous about something, but it's not based on truth. What does it say? It says not according to knowledge. For the listener at that time, the, the Jewish listener, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Not a According to knowledge, are you kidding me? We're probably one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet. You think about their Talmud, which would be similar in size to our Encyclopedia Britannica in length. It's a compilation of oral law and rabbinic commentary. But you think about that person of the day, even those who had memorized the entire Old Testament, to hear that it's not based on, that it's lacking of knowledge. You'd be like, what? But here he's not talking about it. He explains what he's talking about with knowledge, spiritual knowledge. From being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish, to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You track with what they're saying there? He's saying they were the ones that were determining righteousness. They were establishing the standard rather than God. And when we establish our own standard of righteousness, we make one that's a little bit more doable, right? That, that, that's what was happening. When we're the ones that's determining what's, what's right and wrong, and we're like, well, it's kind of a, a sliding scale, and you carry the one over to the two, and you, you, you know what I mean? We, we come up with our own formulas, and that's exactly what was happening. They had created a belief system and a righteousness, that they, but they're like, man, but you have a misunderstanding of God's perfection. They made a mistake thinking God was more tolerant to sin than he is. They had made God so small that it was somewhat even achievable in their mind. So zealous over the wrong thing, missing the knowledge, thinking that they could attain this by human effort. He continues to talk along those lines. And if you think about it, that's the, the root-based issue to any works-based belief system is that it's actually doable, right? It's a small view of an imperfect or small God. What does he say in verse 4? He says, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Noticed maybe on, on the news or in different settings the debate that there is around participation trophies. Have you seen this in the kids' sports world? Like the, the, the plug is, is that, and if you haven't heard the debate, the, the argument is, is that every kid that participates should receive some kind of a reward, a participation reward. Have you guys, are you guys privy to this kind of uh, debate in uh, children's sports? Uh, well, that's, that's the idea. And I was thinking about that. You're, you, there's something that doesn't settle well within you. And you're like, but Johnny was in the outfield picking his nose the whole season. Why does he get a trophy? 
You know, like, and you're like, you're, you're missing something there as far as this. And I would propose that's how many of us believe that's how God deals with us in our life. Well, they gave a good effort. It was a nice try. He, he tried his best. He, he walked that old lady across the street that one time when he was 17. You know, that, that's got to count for something. You see, that's the way we, we, give, we think that God's there giving out participation awards. They're like, no, he's a holy and perfect God. He's a holy and perfect God. And that's, that's why he says the, the, the person that does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, if the perfect law is the route you choose to get to God, you better be ready to keep all of it. See, the truth is, is each one of us is, needs to be considered righteous or right before God. And there's two routes to get there. It's either our righteousness or His righteousness. If you're going to choose to go the route of trying to go your righteousness, guess what that standard is? Perfection. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get there. It's not going to happen. So that's what he's pointing out here. He's, he's saying, but the end, he says, the, for those who believe in Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the alternative. So either you can put your hope in your righteousness or in his righteousness. I think it's interesting. It says, is the end of the law for righteousness. Doesn't mean it's the end of the law. Some of people misread that and they're like, all right, no more law. No, it's the end of the law being the means for righteousness. No longer that's how you get there. So to recap, we still need to be seen righteous before God. There are two ways to achieve, the, achieve that. Righteousness by the law, impossible, or righteousness by faith, possible. Philippians 3, 8 through 9, you might be familiar with this. We usually just read verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this next part. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying it's not going to be based on your righteousness, not on human effort. We're not responsible for salvation, but responsive to it. And even he points out to that in that last, last section, he's saying it's not us trying to reach up to him up in heaven or him in the abyss. Bringing it. it has nothing to do with our effort. It's only our response. So we see that zeal doesn't rescue us. We see that human effort doesn't rescue us. So then the question is, what does rescue us? Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Listen to this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is probably the most clear explanation of the gospel message that I can think of in the New Testament. It's perfectly outlined there. First thing that you'll notice is he says that it's near you. The word is near you. It's already been revealed to us. It's right, in other words, it's right underneath our noses. Remember growing up when we were playing hide and seek with the, the kids, 
when they were having trouble finding something, you would, you'd start to help them out a little bit. And you'd start to say, hey, as you're, they're getting closer to the thing they're looking for, you'd say, they're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, or you're getting hotter, or you're getting cooler as they got away from it. Have you guys ever done this, or is it just me playing these games? Okay, and then when, when you get really close, what do you start saying? You're red hot, you're burning up, like it's right beneath your nose. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, man, we've proclaimed this. This is right beneath your nose. You think of present day, even Western culture, you're like, man, somebody doesn't have to look very far to see Jesus Christ. He's saying it's right, it's right in front of us. My, my wife and I were at a movie last week in the, in the previews. I'm like, at Easter, oh, there's a, a, another uh, movie coming out about the life of Christ. Oh, there's one talking about his resurrection in theaters right now. Like, if, if somebody show, opens even half an eye, they can see the invitation of Jesus Christ that's all around us. They've been exposed to it, but the question in the crossroads, it's in their mouth and their heart, the crossroads is in the two simple words there in verse 9. If you, if you, that's really the decision, and that's the decision that each one of us comes down to. If you, that's the crossroads that we come to. We have to respond to it. It's in front of our noses, but the question is, will you respond? If you, verse 9 through 10 explains the response. If you do what? That he needs to, uh, that he'll rescue you. There's two different things it mentions. Confession and belief. Do you see that there? Confession and belief. When the same idea as what was first presented. Heart, then mouth. What does it mean? Let's unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to believe? Believe is an active trust, not just intellectual assent. Active trust, not intellectual assent. Listening to uh, Francis Chan, who is talking, if you're familiar with that uh, preacher, he was telling the story about different illustrations that he's given over the years, and he was telling of, of one that could have gone terribly wrong. So this was the, the story that he, that he shared. He was talking about this idea of, of belief and not just being intellectual, but something that's, that moves you to action, impacts, impacts your choices in the way you act. He gave the example of he brought a, a BB gun into one of the services, and he's standing up front. He's talking about he had already, before the service, put a balloon on the wall, and he asked the, the people in the audience, he asked, how many of you think that I can shoot the, shoot the balloon? And he's aiming there, and, uh, and, and like 90% of the room's like, we believe in you, you can do it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, all right, all right, now, now how many of you are willing to, you can guess where this is going, how many of you are willing to, to hold up the balloon and let me shoot at it? It dropped significantly, what percentage? But there's still maybe a quarter of the room that was raising their hand. Then he, then he took it the next step further, and he'd taken it off the wall. He put it, put it in his mouth. He said, how many of you would be willing to stand sideways with it in your mouth and let me shoot at it? And a particular guy, I don't know if he was trying to show off or, or, or what, there's down to only two or three people responding at this point in the message, said, all right, I'll do it. And so he's like, he's like oh, man, he's like, well, let's give him at least a scare. So he brought, brought him up there, and he has him standing with the balloon sideways in his mouth. And he said he's looking down the, the barrel of this BB gun, and in the middle of this illustration, he's like, I think I can do it. I think I can hit that balloon. And, uh, and so he said, sure enough, he took the shot. And guess what happened? He hit the balloon. But, uh, but can you imagine, what, what, that, that could have gone really, really poorly to make the point that I'm, t that I'm making by not doing it, but just telling about it. But, but the idea is this, is belief actually influences behavior. Belief actually influences. It's just not intellectual, as we point here. And then confession, 
I like this definition. It is the public expression of an inner conviction. Confession is taking what you've said you believe and professing it, stating it out loud. That's, that's confession. So, it's, not, so it's, a, it's a belief that would actually you would respond to, and it's then you telling or professing it or confessing it to those around you. So that's what he's, that's what he's saying is kind of the, the base mark. But, but what is he saying that we are to actually believe and confess? You can see it in the text there. The first thing you notice is to confess him as Lord. Confess him as Lord. And the important thing to understand with the confess him as Lord is we're not talking about a generic Lord, as in I believe he's Lord over the universe. Confessing him as Lord, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Confessing him as Lord is a personal ruling Lord over my life not talking about like oh i just because because in 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 james 2 we see that even the the demons confess that they'll, they they'll state that they'll say that it's one thing to acknowledge him over the universe it's a whole nother thing when we start to personalize it you see a lot of times we like to separate the idea of savior and lord we're like yeah jesus is my my savior you want to hear an interesting fact in the new testament the word savior is used 10 times the word Lord is used 700 times. So you see that, that, that it's not about just saying Savior. When you, ex when you embrace Him as Lord, He becomes your Savior. When you embrace Him as Lord, what does it say? Confess Him as Lord. It doesn't say confess Him as Savior. Confess Him as Lord. And the, see, the truth is, Lord changes some things. Lord changes some things. It changes the way you act and the way you behave because you can't claim that somebody is a Lord if, 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 the, if they're not influencing the way you live. I couldn't say Nancy. I'm going to pick on you since you're sitting there. I couldn't say Nancy is Lord. That would be weird anyway. Say Nancy is Lord of my life and then not have any question of like, well, what, what does she want of me? When I'm making a decision, I can't say that she's Lord if you haven't even run, anything, run something by Nancy. Like, I couldn't say that, that she was Lord if, there's, if your behavior isn't impacted by what she might be doing in that scenario. You see, I, that gets weird. I'm sorry, Nancy. Uh, but, but you get the idea. When somebody is Lord, it changes things. The way you think, the way you respond the way you act. That's the, that's the thing that so many people miss because we treat it instead. You hear this talked about more of an in, a fire insurance. Yes, that's a, that's, that, that deal is sealed. He's savior. It's done. But I think that's letting us a bit off of the hook, I would propose. Heard the story of a pastor that was at a truck stop and he was talking to a, a truck driver when he was there at the truck stop. The truck driver in the conversation starts going and bragging randomly. He's like, I didn't invite this conversation. He started, started bragging to the pastor and explaining to him. He's like, yeah, I have all these different stops around the United States, and I've got a different woman at each stop. He's explaining that this state, given by name, this woman that he meets up with, it's this other stop, and, and, uh, and the pastor's like, whoa, man, this is, this is a sad conversation. But, but eventually the conversation, after he had listened to him for a while, and this is a true conversation, he, the, the, the man said, well, what is it that, that you do, asking the pastor? And the pastor said, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a church, and I teach God's word. 
And, I, and the, the truck driver said, well, amen, brother. I'm a Christ follower, too. And he says, I'm covered by Christ's righteousness. Ah, do you think maybe he's missing it? Think maybe he's missing the whole idea here? Do you think he's maybe had the idea of Savior and missing the Lord piece? Do you see that? That's a, that's a, a massive example of an extreme situation. But isn't that maybe where the, the American church is confused about this whole, this whole Savior thing and missing the Lord piece? Also think about that in that, that day and time is when you're confessing something, kind of like what we say about in the, the good old days. It used to be just a, a hearty handshake and a man's word, and that's how you made a decision. It was none of these, none of these contracts, because what was saying, when you're confessing something, that isn't, isn't, isn't uh, just a, a random statement. Yeah, I confess that. That was something I said when I was seven in, in Sunday school. But when you confess something, that is a, a verbal, not, not a contract, verbal covenant. Because they didn't talk in terms of, of contracts then. So in, in, in our day and age, we all deal with contracts. If you're going to go, go buy a car, it's something that you do. You sit down, you have a contract. You're like, okay, I'm going to weigh and consider this. And this is how we come to a conclusion. If I'm going to buy this car, I'm going to pay this price. I'm going to get this car. And you, you're doing your very best to, to not get taken advantage of. That's how a, a contract uh, works in our day and age. But that's not what they're talking about here. They didn't deal in contracts. That's something newer to our culture. They dealt in covenant. The difference between a contract and a covenant, it wasn't something that was just done and settled. It was a lifelong, intertwining commitment in between two parties. It was when two worlds became meshed together. What do we think of usually when we think of a, a covenant? What's a, a covenant in present day? Marriage, right? You go into a marriage covenant. You don't say, I do, and then you're like, yes, we signed that, we got that settled, it's a deal, it's done, I'll see you in 30 years from now. And like, no, like, like that would be abuse of the covenant. That would be, you'd even question whether you, what you meant by making that covenant to start with, because what was intended is relationship within the context of that covenant. So when, when, we're, when we're looking at our relationship or salvation, like a contract, we're missing God's heart because when you're in a contract, you're like, all right, there's got to be some loopholes in here. What do I actually, what can I get away with without breaking the contract? But when it's a covenant, that changes everything. So it's important that we're clear on the gospel and the way we present it to somebody ourselves, ourselves in here, before we start sharing it with others. It must, if you think about it, must break God's heart to see us treat him like a, like a legal contract. What can I get out of this? What's the least expected of me when he just wants a marriage relationship? Like this, this quote, the cross is God's marriage proposal. Think about in our, our day and age, everybody likes to brag about all the cool things their fiance did to set up the stage and, and, and make this perfect proposal, create the exact perfect moment. We even reflect on those years and years later. Well, you think about this in, this, in this covenant relationship that we're entering into, God paid the ultimate. He's like, he's like my proposal was dying on a cross coming down, living the perfect life, embracing uh, the, the sins of this world. I took it all upon myself so that we could be in relationship together. So understanding 
what is happening when we say we confess him as Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. See, confessing him as Lord wouldn't make sense if he was just a, a man. You see, when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's the ultimate display of his deity. See, he's not just a good man. He's not just a, a, a noble prophet. He's not just a good teacher. You see, there has to be the God piece. Otherwise, he's not qualified to be, uh, am I going to make somebody that lived 2,000 years ago like Lord of my life? Really? No. But if it's the God who came down in the flesh and invited me into relationship to become my leader and, and director, I'm like, yes, that makes sense. So you see why the two of those are intertwined. All of our future hope hinges on him not just being a man. So two, two pieces of that. And the awesome thing is, that this invite is open to every single person. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love when something's exclusive, that something's not exclusive, everybody's invited, that you see those terms repeated the idea there of everyone, all, everybody. It doesn't, doesn't matter what, the, what your ethnicity, your social status, your family of origin, your economic status, your performance. None of those things matter. He's saying you're all invited. I was talking to a, a friend who works for uh, Oprah, actually for her company, and he was telling me just some different stories of what it was like working for, for her. He actually was in a position where they interacted personally quite a bit. And uh, actually still is. But uh, he was telling a story. It was kind of neat. He's telling uh, when they were based out of Chicago, they had about a staff of a little over 500 uh, people working for, uh, for her. And uh, they had some years back when they were a little bit smaller of a team, they had done a, a Hawaii vacation together as a staff. I'm like, well, that's not a bad setup. And so everybody was just wondering and kept saying, like, I wonder if we'll ever do a, a trip together because they had such a good time. Well, Oprah in this public... Uh, addressing of the staff had this opportunity and she said hey listen guys we had such a great time in Hawaii some years back uh, I wanted to surprise you guys with something we're going to do another trip and this is in Chicago she says we're all headed to the Wisconsin Dells together everybody's like if you're from the Midwest you kind of know that Wisconsin Dells is kind of like a last resort vacation destination kind of like if you still have like 50 bucks in your pocket you're like all right maybe we'll just head up to the Wisconsin Dells but, 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 but here, everybody, so everybody's just kind of like, oh, yay, that, that's, that's great, that's great. And she, she waited perfectly, and she's like, just kidding, we're going to do a 17-day Mediterranean cruise, and you're all invited. I was like, oh, you're like, whoa, that, that, that sounds a little bit better. She's like, not just you, but your entire family can come with you. You're all invited. And the thing, the thing that I loved about that, and, she, and they're like, they, they, he was explaining to me, paid for private planes, everybody uh, flown there, as a cruise all to themselves, every expense covered, every excursion that they did, like all, I was like, man, that's a, little, that's, that's a pretty sweet Christmas uh, bonus. And, uh, and I, I, he was telling me, he's like, in the part that was the neatest about that story in my mind is that it wasn't just the, the uppity ups at the top of the food chain that got invited. The mailman got to go. The person that worked custodian. 
the person that was in the, the, the data entry, the person that was working on graphics behind the scenes. Every single person was invited to come in. They're like, man, and they, said, and they said they did it up in style, like private planes, like everything covered. And he was like, it was a fantastic experience that no one will forget for a lifetime. And I was thinking about that as it relates to this. We hear that story and you're like, that sounds awesome. That sounds great. I want a Mediterranean cruise. But, but, but how, how about this one? How about eternity in heaven with our creator God with perfect bodies, with uh, everything at, that we're reigning over all, that we're, like, are you serious? Like, that's the invitation? Like, oh, he's, he's been working on this for the last couple thousand years. He, remember he said, I, I'm going to prepare a place uh, for you. I remember that was a couple thousand years ago. And so I'm pretty confident it's going to be sweet. And so the, here, here you think about this, what, what in the scope of things, the idea that every single person is invited to this, why wouldn't you be excited to share that with somebody? Can you imagine if you missed a Oprah's announcement? You're the guy that kind of, there's always that guy that kind of missed the meeting. I didn't get the memo. He's down the hallway. He's busy doing his job. And somebody running down the hall coming to tell him, listen, you missed it. Oprah's going to pay for a 17-day cruise on the Mediterranean. And you, know, you imagine that guy, you could hear the shout down the hallway. And that's the same idea for us. It doesn't matter if you've Heard the first time you've heard it or what, the invitation is still exactly the same. And that's where he moves towards the good news and our part in it. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Clearly, he's explaining our part in this. And if there's anybody in here that would describe themselves as I'm a pretty logical person. You'll like this section because it keeps it nice and clear and crisp. You can maybe even grasp this. You can't believe something without hearing about it. Is that, is that doable? Are we able to grasp that? That's, that seems pretty logical in my mind. That's what he's basically in essence saying in this section. He's saying they can't hear unless you tell them. They can't, they, 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 can't, they can't believe, they can't believe unless they've heard. They can't, until you, you're set and go out, it's impossible for them to come to the knowledge of Christ. So for us, that's what we're, our part in is this. We're the mouthpiece to proclaim the good news. I love 1 Corinthians 1.21, says, the second part of the verse says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Love that verse, because first the thing is saying, he's, in other words, he's including us to move people to believe, but he's also saying that you don't even have to do a good job. He's saying through the folly, through your stumbling efforts, just at least share the good news. Just at least, at least walk somebody through it, talk through it. Can you imagine... I, I hate every week in the, the care journal seeing story after story of this person that's 
suffering with cancer and this person from this disease. And you're like, oh, man, your heart breaks, makes you long for heaven. But I imagine if we had discovered the cure for cancer, who would sign up to run up and down the halls of the Mayo Clinic and share the good news? You're just like, man, that would be so fantastic. Imagine sharing with a little girl that that's, that's has a, a death sentence. And imagine telling our parents that, that there's good news. Cancer has been cured. It's, such, it's so awesome. Like You think about even that scenario, and you're like, man, why wouldn't you want to proclaim the good news? Why wouldn't you want to proclaim the good news? Is it such a, a, a burden and weight upon us? Even when he's saying you can even do it in your folly. You can stumble through it. That's fine. I'll take that and move people to believe. I'll move people to believe through that. So what is the good news? We've already talked about that, but it's interesting that good news is literally uh, translated to the same uh, term used for the gospel. So in other words, if you think you have a better news, you're like, even by definition, the gospel is the good news. There's no such thing as better news. It is the good news, and that's what we're invited I think it's interesting that it says that it describes the, the feet. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Don't normally, and does, do people normally associate like beauty with feet? I don't usually, when I think of feet, I kind of think of like, ah, that's kind of a gross part. My, my wife, after being married for quite a few years, she explained to me that when we were first dating, there was a scenario, and I don't even remember this, but there's a scenario where she actually saw my my feet for the first time. This is embarrassing to tell in front of you, uh, but, but I played a lot of basketball, and like my big toenail would get broken off sometimes. My feet aren't, aren't they've gotten better, but, uh, uh, but she was saying it was almost a deal breaker. She's like, she, that, that almost ended our relationship, and, I, and, and so when you think of, of beautiful feet, what makes a foot beautiful it obviously isn't the appearance of them. What makes a foot beautiful is what we do with them. What we do, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. So, so for us, when we're thinking through, man, what, is it, what does it look like to have a, a, a life that would be described as, as beautiful, that's fulfilling, that has purpose and meaning? It's a life that's bringing good news. It's a life that, that, that brings good news that's taken, that, that's a quote, you see it's in quotations, it's from Isaiah 52, 7, it was referring to those who went around announcing freedom from captivity from the Babylonian Empire, if you remember in the Old, in the Old Testament, when they're finally set free, that was with the same descriptor of somebody that was going around and saying, we're, we're set free, it's, we're no longer in captivity, like, can you believe this news? That's the same picture that he's painting for us. So what is our involvement in this? What is our role? It's speaking up about it. It's talking about it. It's, it's being willing to take a risk and open your mouth. You're like, why, why would I be so hesitant to share something? I like this quote. It says, what will it take for the concept of the unsaved being born, living, dying, and going to hell without hearing become intolerable. When will that become intolerable? The idea of somebody being born, living, dying, and, and not hearing, when will that rattle in our brains enough to say, man, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with somebody not hearing. He, uh, he points to appropriate expectations for this in verse 16. It says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. In other words, for us going into this to know that just by proclaiming it, 
it's not a guarantee that somebody is going to respond. Anybody experience that firsthand? They're like, but I have talked about it. I have proclaimed it. And it seems to, to not get anywhere. He's like, hey, just, just know that that's part of the deal. Part of the deal is sometimes you share it and sometimes people are not interested. But sometimes you share it and it redirects somebody's eternity. It changes everything. It changed. It's the it's the rescue plan. So it's the rescue plan that he chooses to include in uh, include us in. And the last couple of verses are a, re- a reminder of our role in it and his role in it. It says, "But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In other words, introducing the Gentiles to the faith." It says, then Isaiah is bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. The thing that I notice in this section there is that the bottom line isn't with our pursuit and our interest. The bottom line isn't even with our presentation of it. It doesn't hinge on that. What it hinges on, as we see there, a couple words, shown himself and held out my hands. What it comes down to is we're proclaiming he's pursuing. We're proclaiming he's pursuing. When we actually get the weight of the, of the pursuing part off of our backs, and just, just be like, okay, well, my job is the proclaim. He's the one that extends his hand. He's, he's the one that keeps showing himself. He's the one that keeps making himself real. You think of your own story. You're like, man, I don't think it was typically because of this great presentation. It was because of the pursuit of God. So what is the rescue plan? The rescue plan is first be crystal clear on what the gospel is. It's not, just, it's not just about being zealous. It's not just about human effort. What it is about is it is about inviting Jesus into a covenant relationship to be our Lord. Into a covenant relationship to be our Lord. And then we're proclaiming that. That, that re- redirects things. That changes everything. Our part is to, is to present and his part is to pres- uh, pursue. It's an encouraging partnership because you're like, ah, I can do that. I can do that. I, I, can, I can explain the gospel, like the, the, the simplicity of it, that, that, we were, that we were sinners, that we were separated from God, we were headed to a Christless eternity in, in hell, but God didn't leave us in that situation. He intervened on our behalf, came down, lived the perfect life, died on a cross, gave us the opportunity to have forgiveness of sins because he rose again and had victory over, over death. Man, it comes down to a simple choice. You're like, well, I think if I spend a little time thinking through that, I could share that with somebody. Even if it was done in the folly, even if it was done like kind of stumbling through it, God still chooses to use that. So that's the rescue plan. That's our role in the plan. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for your word and the explanation that it gives of this. I pray for those of us that maybe, if we're a bit honest, we've been confused about the plan ourselves. We've misunderstood the difference between a covenant and a contract. We've misunderstood the difference between Savior and Lord. What I love about covenants and about vows is that they can be redone 
that we can call out to you. And even this morning, maybe there's someone in this room that needs to call out to you and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I think I've, I've missed it. I think I've uh, abused this relationship. I think I've seen it more as a contract. God, please, please, I, I want to make you Lord, but I don't know how. That's where I'm confident, Lord, that you will help us in it. That's why your word says that you've sent a helper in that process. Not something that we get perfect, but something that we're moving in the right direction. God, we thank you so much for the purpose that you invite us into. How that would change our weeks, our days, the monotony of work. Maybe the empty feeling that we come home with at the end of a long day. How that would change if we saw ourselves as bringers of good news. How that would change everything. And I pray that we wouldn't miss out on all that you've called us to. It's by your kindness that you choose to include us in your rescue plan. God, I pray that we'd see that. I pray that we'd live that. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. pretty exciting to think that we have the opportunity to be a part of his rescue plan in this. It's a, it's a kindness on his behalf. Let's remember that. Let's go, let's take some risks and some conversations this week. What would it look like? Would it be the end of the world to bring up that good of news to somebody? I'd propose that it would be the best, kindest thing you could do for somebody this week. Amen? God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday.